Well, good afternoon, everybody. I am uh, Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And I want to thank you all for coming. You were at a Capitol Hill briefing entitled Trump Trade in the Asia Pacific. Um, for those unaware, the Cato Institute for over 40 years now has been a research organization dedicated to the principles of individual liberty, free markets, and peaceful international relations. We provide top-notch principled policy analysis to lawmakers and public policy staff all over the country. This spring, we released the eighth edition of the Cato Handbook for Policymakers, copies of which were available on the table as you came in. Um, chapter 8 details our recommendations for improving international trade and investment policy. Further, there are a pair of chapters dealing with relations with China and East Asian security as well as much else. Um, if you'd like more copies, please contact me after the program. Uh, meanwhile, fully searchable PDFs of the entire 80-chapter volume are available at Cato.org. Uh, you'll also know that there are additional relevant materials on your uh, chairs today, and uh, for, you can review those, I guess, at a later time. Um, also at Cato.org, we are live streaming today's event, as well as on our Facebook page. So if you'd like to ask any questions, we'd be happy to entertain them during the Q&A. Further, you may tweet questions and comments to us at hashtag CatoEvents. Further, uh, oh, for Hill staff, I'll add that both of our Washington-based scholars here today are generally available for consult on trade-related matters. So please contact me after if you'd like to go in more detail on any of these topics, and we are here to help you out. So, And with that, I want to briefly introduce our speakers. Dan Eikenson is director of Cato's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies, where he coordinates and conducts research on all manner of international trade and investment policy. Since joining Cato in 2000, Eikenson has authored dozens of papers on various aspects of trade policy, focusing his research on U.S.-China trade relations, bilateral and multilateral trade agreements and institutions, globalization, U.S. manufacturing issues, trade politics, and trade remedies, such as the anti-dumping regime. In addition to his many studies and articles, I can send his co-author of the book, Anti-Dumping Exposed, The Devilish Details of Unfair Trade Law. He has testified before congressional committees on a variety of policy matters and has appeared on numerous television, news programs, and networks. And his articles have been published in widely circulated newspapers and magazines. Eikenson holds an MA in economics from George Washington University. And then we'll have Colin Graybow, who is a new scholar with us at Cato. He is a policy analyst at the same Herbert A. Stiefel Center, where his research focuses on U.S. trade with Asia and Latin America. Prior to joining the Cato Institute, he performed political and economic analysis for a Japan-based trading and investment firm and published research and analysis for an international affairs consulting firm with a focus on U.S.-Asia relations. Also a George Washington University grad, Graybow earned an MA in international trade and investment policy. So each will take about 20 minutes or so, and then we'll open it up to your questions. So for, let's welcome Dan Eikenson. Let's welcome them with applause. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that, Peter. Thanks. Thank you all for coming. I'm going to just make a, a, a correction. It's really my fault. Uh, one of the best decisions I made at Cato as a director of the Trade Center was to hire Colin Grabo. And I called him Colin Grabow. Even when we hired him and extended him the, the, the offer, uh, I didn't know the proper pronunciation of his name. It's Colin, Colin Grabow. So the topic is Trump, trade, and the Asia Pacific, which means we can talk about any one of those three, uh, or touch upon all three, and I'll try to do that. Um, we really are in uncharted waters uh, as far as trade policy is going, uh, as far as trade policy go goes. Uh, and there's, there's a reason to be concerned about that. Uh, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution vests authority in the Congress to uh, regulate foreign commerce, to 
conduct trade policy, basically. However, over the years, some of that authority has been delegated to the executive branch through statutes, statutes that enable the president to uh, increase trade barriers in the face of what are, what are perceived to be unfair trade, threats to national security, um, a variety of, of, of conditions. And I think when previous Congresses passed those laws, they didn't have Donald Trump in mind as the next president of the United States. Uh, I don't think since Herbert Hoover, uh, we haven't had a president who has thought protectionism is going to make America great. Uh, U.S. policy since the 1930s, since 1934, has been to uh, embrace trade, uh, to uh, encourage multilateralism, and we're seeing basically a 180-degree turn uh, with, uh, with, with President Trump. So protectionist nationalism is certainly ascendant uh, in Washington today, and it's fortified by the persistence of these pernicious myths that we have, we thought we killed over the years. I mean, Adam Smith was supposedly vanquished the mercantilists. Um, time and time again, we hear these myths, uh, and the evidence is furnished against them, but it doesn't seem to persist. So things like trade is a zero-sum game, a competition between us and them, Team USA against, say, Team China, uh, where exports are our points and imports are the foreign team's points. The trade account is the scoreboard. And we have a deficit, so that means that we're losing. We're losing at the game. And we're losing at the game, normally, the, the, the explanation is that the foreign team is cheating. Or US negotiators aren't smart enough. Something to that effect. Um, we hear that the trade deficit means that we are losing, and that we need to address the trade deficit uh, as though the, that is um, the, the outcome of trade policy, where trade deficits don't really have anything to do with trade policy. They have a lot more to do with disparate patterns of consumption and savings. Um, this idea that uh, uh, manufacturing has been destroyed, gutted by globalization and trade is an absolute myth. The U.S. manufacturing is thriving and has, has always thrived. I mean, there are cyclical recessions that we go through, uh, like every other sector. But on, on a trend basis, it's been going up. Uh, we don't have as many workers. That peaked in 1979 at 19.4 million. We have fewer workers in the sector. But uh, value added, exports, return on investment, uh, all, all these things are, are, are doing, doing, doing really well. However, we hear the president uh, and his team uh, refer to uh, the, the plight of the steel industry or the coal industry or uh, uh, any manufacturing industry as uh, a reflection of some pernicious foreign practices uh, has really nothing to do with it. Um, we hear that outsourcing is bad and we need to stop it. We need to tweet at companies who are thinking about building plants in Mexico and, 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 and tempt their stock values to, to, to decline as a result of that. We hear that the World Trade Organization usurps U.S. sovereignty when it has no such uh, authority to do that. Um, there is this uh, implicit or ex explicit uh, war that is being uh, presented to the American people uh, as though trade were just a, a matter of hand-to-hand -hand combat and not something that benefits all parties involved. Now, despite all this, we heard this in the campaign, we've heard this in the first 10 months of Trump's administration, we haven't seen any overt protectionism yet. We have not seen any overt protectionism yet. Yes, there's been an increase in anti-dumping 
countervailing duty cases, record territory. In fact, there was a, a self-initiation finally yesterday, the first one. Um, uh, there, are, there are two safeguard cases that are under uh, in, in process right now, and there likely will be duties imposed there. There are two investigations under a fairly obscure national security law, Section 232, of, uh, which, which, which could uh, uh, enable the president to impose duties if, in fact, national, there's a national security threat found by our dependence on foreign aluminum and foreign um, steel. Um, but there was no changing of Buy American, no tightening of Buy American rules yet. There's, the steel companies weren't uh, forced, I'm sorry, the, the, the pipeline companies weren't forced to use U.S. steel. All of these things were foreshadowed, and they haven't happened yet. <laughs> there are dark storm uh, clouds on the horizon, though. Um, we uh, see possible CFIUS reform, which could be overreaching. CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which oversees foreign investments, uh, uh, foreign acquisitions of U.S. companies. I think that's kind of directed uh, at, at, at China and China's uh, strategy. We haven't seen NAFTA withdrawal, but that is a possibility. So far, the negotiations haven't made a whole lot of progress, and the U.S. is still the U.S. negotiators are still standing by some uh, what are characterized as poisonous pills, some some pretty bad ideas in the NAFTA. Um, so it hasn't happened. It's threatened. There, there's a, there are a lot of threats out there. But the worst thing that has happened, I think, uh, is uh, Trump's withdrawal from the TPP. Um, there was a lot of controversy uh, uh, surrounding the TPP. I don't think it was particularly presented well uh, up here uh, to Congress. But the agreement was a good, good agreement. It wasn't, we did a very thorough assessment of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, chapter by chapter. And we found some chapters to be not so good. Protectionism's baked into these these agreements in, in some cases. Uh, but on net, we found trade liberalizing, and we wanted to support it. And we, we, we did advocate uh, on behalf of it. Um, the biggest undervalued virtue of the TPP was that it was a living agreement. Actually, the TPP still exists as the TPP-11. Um, but it's a living agreement. The whole idea behind it was that other countries could join. It was replacing a model that had failed, a model of trade liberalization uh, where uh, consensus-driven liberalization that began with the GATT in 1947 and ended uh, with the Uruguay round in 1994, where everybody gets together and nothing's agreed until everything's agreed. Well, we had this long protracted Doha round, which began in 2001, which produced no results. And I think the conclusion from that is that consensus-driven trade agreements are an impossibility now with 164 countries in the, in the WTO. The TPP was, uh, was a new model, um, achieved critical mass in terms of the size of the economies involved, uh, come up with decent rules uh, and, and rules that other countries will want to aspire to. And to me, this was the answer. People who are complaining about China and Chinese practices, China would have been disciplined by the TPP uh, in the sense that Korea would have joined, Taiwan might have joined, uh, Indonesia, Thailand, uh, other South American countries. China would have seen all the countries in its supply chains joining the TPP and it would be put at a disadvantage. It would have needed to get in. It might not be called the, the TPP by the time China joined. Maybe it would be called the free trade area of the Asia Pacific. But I think China would definitely have wanted to, uh, to be in. And by abandoning that, we are 
basically uh, saying we see no value in the rules-based system of trade and the institutions that we really helped author, or were the primary authors of, after the Second World War, which created all this prosperity uh, up until the present. And we're saying, you know, we're not interested. Uh, and I think that that was a, uh, a huge, huge mistake. Now, without TPP, China is certainly at the center of the action uh, in Asia. Where it belongs, <laughs> China is, you know, one-fifth of the world's population. Uh, it's a big player. Um, so we shouldn't necessarily reflexively be opposed to China's initiatives. Uh, it's, we have this growing perception here that uh, ch w w as China takes a step forward, it comes at our expense. But in the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is an ASEAN-originated deal, which involves a lot of the same TPP countries, uh, that uh, I, there's no real harm to the United States for, for, for that going forward. We're hurting ourselves by bailing out uh, of the TPP. The, the One Belt, One Road, Colin's going to talk more about this, an initiative that we should support. Why not have taxpayers in China paying for infrastructure projects in Asia and Eurasia? Uh, will benefit. U.S. Uh, interests are going to benefit from that. So anyway, we've, uh, we've forfeited a lot of commercial leverage strategic leverage in the, in, the reason, in the region. We've discarded uh, our soft power. And we've made it more difficult, I think, to rein in legitimately objectionable uh, Chinese, Chinese practices. And without TPP, the United States has free trade agreements with only two Asian countries, Singapore and, and South Korea. And the South Korea agreement, the chorus, is, is in jeopardy. It's, it's quite possible that that will be terminated. Uh, if that's the case, we only have a free trade agreement with Singapore, and everybody has a free trade agreement with Singapore. There's <laughs> no, nothing particularly special about it, but we, uh, we are removing ourselves. Um, let, me let, me, let me talk more about the U.S.-China relationship uh, and, and how we got to where we are. Um, give me yeah, three, three, four minutes. Um, from Tiananmen Square until the Great Recession, that approximately 20-year period, we had a pretty decent relationship with China. We, uh, we focused on the mutual interests, the commercial interests. Yes, there were some growing pains. Yes, some industries uh, felt uh, muscled out. But we had access to trade remedies after 2001. We had access to the WTO, although we didn't really use the WTO for, for, uh, for Chinese uh, alleged infractions until about 2005. Um, but the relationship was, was, was pretty good. And on a different track, the commercial part of the relationship was on one track. The geopolitics, human rights issues, areas where we tended to disagree were segregated. And I think we just focused on, on the commercial relationship. Um, U.S. policy was a balancing act of import competing in industries who wanted protectionism on this side, and U.S. multinational corporations who wanted the U.S. government to tread lightly open up the Chinese market. There's a huge potential market, so we, we want openness. These guys want protectionism, and trade policy went sort of down, down the center. And uh, after the Great Recession, we sort of lost our mojo here. U.S. growth was very slow. Unemployment high by U.S. standards. We were heavily in debt. A lot of that debt was owned by the Chinese. China was still growing at double digits, and, and, and policymakers started to ask themselves questions. 
where do we go wrong? Where did China go right? So we got a little tougher on the enforcement side. We got a little, uh, under the Obama administration, we brought many more cases to the WTO, a lot of uh, trade remedies cases. Um, and I think uh, the relationship uh, has gone sort of, sort of back and forth. We had the, the, uh, the uh, um, cybersecurity breaches, uh, cyber espionage issues, um, and there's been a quiet sort of tech war going on between the United States and China uh, over the years. What happened in 2009, uh, some U.S. MNCs, multinational corporations, the AmCham, uh, uh, American Chamber of Commerce in China, found evidence of uh, these uh, in, uh, indigenous innovation policies and plans to borrow Western technology, to leapfrog Western technology. And I think what happened is that the, 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 the multinationals, those who had been unabashedly in favor of openness, started losing optimism, started losing interest, and they've come this way. So U.S. policy has been a little bit more, more strident. Um, right now, we have um, quite a few things on the table. We have a Section 301 case, which is a law that hasn't been used uh, in a couple decades. Uh, it allows the U.S. Allows the president to impose trade restrictions in response to unfair practices abroad. Ever since we joined the WTO, we've pretty much given up use of that because we're not, we, we're not permitted to act unilaterally as a WTO member. The Trump administration has launched a case into uh, under, under Section 301. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to impose any restrictions if they find infractions, uh, but they are investigating uh, for, forced technology transfer that, that, that the Chinese are allegedly doing to U.S. companies. Um, apparently, a lot of U.S. companies haven't really wanted to come come forward and, and explain uh, and furnish evidence of this practice happening for fear of retribution from Beijing. Um, but this uh, is a potentially very explosive part of, a, of, a, of our relationship. Um, the, uh, if we think we're, our dependence on foreign steel is a national security issue, I think China believes its dependence on foreign semiconductor technology is a matter of national security. And I think if we, do, if we were to react and do something rash, uh, that we might see China cracking down on U.S. semiconductor uh, companies and offering the whole market to, to Korean or Taiwanese, Japanese, or American companies that want to play ball. Uh, I think that could be very problematic. We need to figure out a way to ward this off. Uh, I don't know, one of the, one of, uh, the pieces was Simon's, uh, I don't know if it talked about the free trade agreement idea. We're pushing a free trade agreement between the United States and China. We have all these problems, all these issues, and they're aired, and very rarely are they resolved. Uh, the can is kicked down the road. It's been assumed for a long time that a free trade agreement between the United States and China is politically impossible. I'm not sure that it is politically impossible if the alternative is a debilitating trade war. Uh, and I think with President Xi's coronation, uh, it might be easier for him to reach a trade agreement with the United States. He has fewer domestic obstacles than he had a year ago or a couple of years ago. So, that's something I think we should explore uh, to, um, uh, and you know, the president likes bilateral agreements. Well, here's, uh, here's the biggest one in the world. Um, so it might be a long shot, but it's something that we're uh, promoting. It's an idea that we're uh, going to continue to pitch. So anyway, with, uh, with 
the bit of pessimism, slight bit of optimism. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Colin now, who's going to explain to you why you shouldn't be worried about some of these Chinese initiatives. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming out today. Thanks to Peter for organizing this. Thanks to Dan for the very kind introduction. Uh, once again, my name is Colin Gravo. I'm a trade policy analyst at the Cato Institute. And I'd like to focus my remarks on uh, China's efforts to advance free trade in the Asia-Pacific region, as well as its efforts to advance trade more generally through infrastructure linkages uh, through the One Belt, One Road Initiative, uh, and the, also known as the Belt and Road Initiative, as well as the establishment of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, some of the stuff has promoted or led to a lot of hand-wringing in Washington. I'd like to talk about why I think that may be misplaced. I'm going to be borrowing heavily from uh, some points I made in a paper published last month called uh, Responsible Stakeholders, Why the United States Should Welcome China's Economic Leadership. So if you like what I have to say, you want to know more, please go online and check that out. So let's start off with talking about free trade and what China's doing there. Uh, the first thing China's doing is they're saying a lot of the right things. Uh, there's been a lot of pro-free trade speeches given by Xi Jinping and some of the other senior Chinese officials. Uh, at Davos, Xi Jinping said that pursuing protectionism is like locking oneself in a dark room. While wind and rain may be kept outside, that dark room will also block light and air. No one will emerge as a winner in a trade war. I can't imagine our president saying something similar. Uh, I also liked Premier Li's formulation. We've all heard about the need for uh, free and fair trade, and he said, you want fair trade, you want fair trade, you need free trade. Um, I, we need more of that. Now, people can say, well, this is just rhetoric. What's, what's behind that? I, I'd point to a couple things. Number one, I think rhetoric has its own value. I think that it helps guard against the normalization of protectionism. I also think it leaves China open to charges of hypocrisy. Uh, but I think if we look a little deeper, there may be some substance to what China's saying. Uh, in March, there was a meeting held between the TPP members, minus the United States, and Chile, which also includes South Korea and China. And the head of Chile's uh, trade efforts said, quote, the Chinese want to be the leaders, the benchmark. That was not like that before. I think that's of interest. Also, as Dan pointed out, they're advancing the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which was started as an ASEAN uh, initiative, but now includes 16 countries, including Japan, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, and it's being championed by China. Over the last decade or so, China has concluded a number of free trade agreements, bilaterals, uh, with New Zealand, South Korea, Australia, Iceland, Switzerland, and they still have others under negotiation. For perspective, the U.S. over the last 10 years has negotiated three bilateral deals with South Korea, Panama, and Colombia. Uh, I think it's also worth noting that it was just announced that uh, China is going to begin talks with Canada about concluding a free trade agreement. Last year, the United States and China were negotiating a bilateral investment treaty, which supposedly was nearing the finish line before the Obama administration exited. Uh, just this week, China announced it is unilaterally cutting tariffs on 187 product categories from an average tariff rate of 17.3% to 7.7%. I don't want to make too much of this, but it's a step in the right direction. And I, I think it's encouragement. Uh, turning to infrastructure, China, of course, has established, or they were the leading force for the establishment of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which I think officially opened its doors in early 2016, as well as the One Belt, One Road, uh, Belt and Road Initiative, if you prefer, which uh, uses uh, 
concessionary financing to promote infrastructure development. Now, you may be asking yourself, why is a libertarian from the Cato Institute here promoting Chinese communist big government infrastructure uh, investments? Well, first off, I'm not here to cheerlead. Rather, what I'm here to say is I think this is not necessarily a bad thing and quite potentially could even be a good thing. Uh, I'm interested to see what happens. Uh, we, we, we should keep in perspective. We like to talk a lot about barriers to trade being tariffs, non-tariff barriers like quotas or domestic content requirements. We talk about red tape and customs. Well, a lack of infrastructure is also another barrier to trade. If you can't get your product from point A to point B, you can have all the best rules in the world. It's not going to matter. I think there is a very real need for infrastructure investment bank, uh, for infrastructure investment in, the, in Asia. Uh, the Asian Development Bank has estimated that uh, the region, that less developed countries in the region require expenditures of $1.5 to $1.7 trillion versus actual expenditures of less than $900 billion. So there's a shortfall there of $600 billion uh, that needs to be made up. Now, you may say the Asian Development Bank, they're in the business of infrastructure. It's really no surprise that they're saying we need to spend more money on infrastructure. But it's also worth noting that uh, the World Economic Forum, they do rankings and ratings on infrastructure for, for every country in the world. And if you look at their ratings for uh, these countries in Asia, many of China's neighbors score quite poorly. Uh, lastly, I think there's a business opportunity for American firms. You want to build a lot of infrastructure? Well, that's good news if you're Caterpillar, if you're GE, if you're in the business of building a power plant um, items. So, you know, I, I think this is all reason for encouragement. Now, I'd like to address some of the criticisms that I've heard of these various initiatives. Some people say, well, RCEP, it's a bad deal. Um, or these FTAs, they're more symbolism than substance. There's not a whole lot to it. You know, there, there's some justified criticism to be made. But, you know, these don't represent an ideal. But I do think they are a step forward, and there's nothing real going on here. For example, RCEP, uh, the Asian Development Bank calculated the payoff to concluding RCEP would be $260 billion. For context, the Peterson Institute calculated that TPP, before the U.S. left, would be a payoff of $492 billion, so roughly double RCEP, whereas the current TPP-11 is only $147 billion. Also, RCEP can serve, Dan mentioned earlier, the free trade area of the Asia-Pacific. Uh, APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, has designated RCEP as a pathway towards uh, the FTAP along with the TPP. So it, I think it can be an intermediate step, or it's a step forward towards getting towards what I think should be our ultimate goal of having an FTAP that encompasses the Pacific Rim. Uh, RCEP recently went, they had a, a round of negotiations in South Korea, which was the 20th round of negotiations. If there's nothing of substance being discussed, why is it so difficult for them to get a, a, a deal done? Uh, I'd also point out that to the extent the U.S. suffers, this is mainly a product of trade diversion, but we really have no reason to complain after we pull out a TPP. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. We, the story is not RCEP. It's about what we're not doing. Also, some people say, well, RCEP, uh, it's inferior to TPP. It didn't cover as much territory. And that's true. It didn't. Uh, but that's not, not necessarily a bad thing. For example, TPP had chapters on labor and environment, in my opinion. I think in the opinion of most people at Cato Institute that TPP would be a better agreement absent such chapters. I think those are uh, issues that are best dealt with outside of free trade agreements, if they're to be dealt with at all. Um, also, as far as you've heard this argument that if we don't, that RCEP will set the rules of the road. Uh, these rules of the road, how countries conduct international trade, these are not cast in stone. Uh, they can always be changed. 
and with the participation of countries in RCEP like Australia, like Japan, like New Zealand, and South Korea, I don't think that these are countries that are going to sign off on a bad deal. In fact, just I believe last week, uh, the Nikkei Asian Review reported that China wants a rapid conclusion of these RCEP talks, whereas Japan and Australia are seeking a high-quality deal covering services and investment rather than just lowering tariffs on trading goods. Also regarding the FTAs, um, if these are meaningless, why does Canada want one? Why is New Zealand currently in the process of upgrading their agreement with uh, China, which is for the record, you know, it's, it's a very different deal than what the U.S. is doing with NAFTA and with Korea, where I think we're taking a step backwards. They're trying to expand their FTA. In fact, I saw a quote from a New Zealand trade official just the other day who said it's, uh, that the FTA has made it op easier to deal with um, contentious issues of operating in the Chinese market and that resolving these issues, some of which Dan spoke about, these become easier once you have a free trade agreement with, with China. Uh, Australia has seen their exports to China increase three times faster than the rest of the world since they conclude their FTA. Their sales of wine alone are up 40 percent. New Zealand's exports have quadrupled since 2008 when they signed the FTA. Um, turning to the infrastructure element, some people say, well, this is, this is going to be a bad deal for the recipient countries. You may have heard Secretary of State Rex Tillerson refer to this as predatory economics, basically going to saddle these countries with a bunch of debt. Uh, I even heard the theory floated that China is going to use uh, its debt to then engage in debt for equity swaps and take over some of these pieces of infrastructure. One example, there's a port in Sri Lanka uh, is losing money, so the government of Sri Lanka turned it over to China. Um, my attitude is, well, China gains control of money-losing assets. I, I don't really see how far that gets them. If this is a nefarious scheme, it doesn't seem to be very well thought out. Uh, I'd also point out that these decisions on whether to accept Chinese aid or loans, it's, it's a decision for these countries to make. We shouldn't be in a paternalistic position. They're no strangers to dealing with China. Um, just earlier this month, Nepal and Pakistan both canceled dam uh, deals with China. Uh, Pakistan has rejected a deal uh, or a Chinese desire for the Chinese currency, the yuan, to be legal tender in the Gwadar free port because they regard that as a sovereignty infringement. These are countries that have demonstrated a capability to say no. Um, I'd also say that these are probably the best offers. If there were better offers, these countries would take them. So to the extent that we should be criticizing, maybe we ask why aren't there better offers available? Again, we shouldn't be sniping from the sidelines. China acts you know, we should make a better deal, or I don't think we have a whole lot of ground to criticize. I think it's also worth looking at Africa, where China has done a lot of uh, investment. It's not a pure infrastructure play, but they have done some infrastructure investment there. There was a survey done last year of 56,000 people in 36 African countries, uh, who, and 63% of them said that China's influence in their countries was somewhat to very positive. Uh, also, you know, for what it's worth, Moody's rating agency and said in September they did a, what they call a report card on One Belt, One Road, and they said they found that overall it generate more positive than negative effects both for China and the recipient countries. I've heard the argument that this is more sizzle than steak and that this is overhyped, this is just Beijing showmanship. I think that's entirely possible, but that doesn't really strike me as a reason to oppose what they're doing. Um, there's an argument out there that RCEP and One Belt, One Road will create an all roads lead to Beijing phenomenon. You may have seen today's David Ignatius column, which was in this vein alluding to China building an empire. And you talked about the building of a, a lane telecom fiber that would connect uh, you know, several dozen African countries. I don't really understand why that's a problem. I saw another recent opinion column which said that the Belt and Road Initiative, quote, binds states and economies into a China-centered economic and strategic system. 
Another one said that it will make progress towards rewiring large portions of the global economy to a more China-centric order. What does this rhetoric mean? Uh, does this mean that the economic fate of China's neighbors will be more closely linked to that of China? Well, I got news for you. China has over a billion people. It has a growing economy. These countries are going to orient themselves towards China and take advantage of that trading relationship no matter whether some additional pieces of infrastructure are built or not. Um, and to the extent this can be mitigated, I think, again, make them a better offer. I've also heard that One Belt, One Road will increase Chinese military power, you know, such as uh, these port facilities will serve as naval bases. Well, that's entirely possible, but let's keep in mind you could say the same with the Panama Canal. Uh, we engineered a coup. We took over the Panama Canal, built it so that in large parts their naval power from the eastern seaboard could more easily access the Pacific and not have to go through the Strait of Magellan around the tip of South America. And in doing so, we created one of the more important conduits for international commerce. Uh, there's an argument that the AIB is a tool of China. Well, if you really believe that, then what the US and countries like Japan should do is join the AIB and dilute China's voting share. Uh, ultimately, I just don't see China becoming the Pied Piper of Asia where they show up, throw a bunch of money around it, everyone falls in line. I think it's just a lot more complicated than that. Um, to conclude, I'm not here to advocate for mindless infrastructure spending. I'm sure there are going to be white elephants. I think there'll probably be some useful projects as well. What we know is that the region does need better infrastructure. If China's providing it, let's see what happens. It's not our money on the line. Um, and we, can't, we shouldn't make it our goal of saving other people from making bad decisions. This isn't meant to be an apology for China either. Rather, I think we need to take a more balanced and nuanced view uh, rather than a binary one where you said either China is good or bad. I think that some of their actions, such as in the South China Sea, on protectionism, on intellectual property violations, it's very deserving of criticism. But I think when they do some worthwhile things, we also need to recognize that and avoid unnecessary antagonisms and self-fulfilling prophecies of conflict. Um, again, I titled my paper, Responsible Stakeholders. This is an allusion to a 2005 speech given by then Deputy Secretary of State Robert Zellick, which he called for China to step up to the plate and do more. Well, when they step up and do more, then we, we can't turn around and criticize them for doing that and have this damn if they do, damn if they don't kind of approach. Um, Lastly, I think we need to worry more about what we're not doing rather than what China is doing. We can't disengage and then snipe from the sidelines or serve as some kind of international peanut gallery. Uh, if we don't like RCEP, we should push TPP. You don't like infrastructure? Well, we either do it ourselves or try to work with China to improve this. Um, this is our most, you know, we need to fo focus more on competing with China rather than trying to contain China. This is our most important bilateral economic relationship. It's only going to become more so, and it's very important that we get it right. Thank you very much.